Chapter thirty of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty. Who can minister to a mind diseased? Sir Everard Courtney had returned to his own house a greater invalid than when he left it. He had tried one spot after another upon the shores of the Mediterranean. He had crossed to Algiers, he had visited the monastery of La Trappe, where he was curiously interested in the inscriptions on the walls, and where he made inquiries as to the mode of life in that living tomb. But no advantages of southern climate, no fresh sea breezes could bring vigour to his frame or brightness to his eye, nor did frequent change of scene, with all the varying incidents of travel, dispel the settled gloom that hung over his spirits. One day he told his daughter suddenly that he was going to take her home by easy stages through Italy and the Mont Cenis tunnel. "'I want to set my house in order before I die,' he said. "'Oh, dear father, why do you talk like that?' exclaimed Dulcie, clinging to him tenderly. "'You are better, are you not?' "'Do you think I'm better, Dulcie?' he asked, looking at her with grave, questioning eyes. "'Well, I hoped that the milder climate, that the change from place to place, faltered Dulcie, would prolong my life. Yes, that is just what the London doctor hoped, or made believe to hope. Yet I find this miserable frame of mine no stronger because I have dragged it all along the southern coast. I find no more delight in life under African skies than in the quiet lanes around Osthorpe. But we will not stop long at Fairview. You would not like it, perhaps, now. I should be very miserable there, said Dulcie, her eyes filling with tears. Oh, my pet, my darling, you shall not stay. If you would like me to leave you in Florence, I could come back to you in a few weeks. I have friends there who will take charge of you. Oh, no, papa, I will not be parted from you. The duty, the only delight of my life, is to be with you. They sailed for Naples next morning, and travelled at a leisurely pace through Italy, seeing all that was worth seeing between Naples and Turin, Sir Everard hoping that Dulcie's mind might be diverted by the variety of scenes through which she passed. But neither Africa nor Italy, with all their romantic associations, had power over Dulcie's mind, or could make her forget Morton Blake and the happy, simple life at Fairview, before the beginning of sorrow. And now they had bent their steps homeward, Morton was continually in her mind. She was wondering what she should hear of him when she returned. Perhaps people would tell her that he was engaged to Lady Frances Grange, and she would have to endure their sympathy on account of his fickleness. In any case, she would have to bear a great deal. Everybody would be astonished at the rupture of an engagement which had been an established fact in the village, a fact known to the smallest urchin at the parish schools. "'I hope he does care for Lady Frances,' she said to herself sadly. "'Anything would be better than the idea that I had made his life unhappy.' Yet she could not picture him to herself as Fanny Grange's lover without a bitter pang of jealousy." They reached Fairview late in the afternoon, weary with the journey from Turin, whence they had travelled with only a few hours' rest in Paris. There were only servants to receive them, 
and Dulcie would have died rather than ask any questions about Morton. Sir Everard heard of Morton's illness from Philip Stanton within an hour of his return, and he at once warned Dulcie's maid, Emma Pugh, to say not one word to her mistress on the subject. "'Miss Courtney is so tender-hearted,' said Sir Everard, "'that although everything is at an end between her and Mr. Blake, "'she would make herself unhappy if she knew of his illness.' "'But they say the doctors have given him over, sir. "'If he dies, my mistress is sure to hear of it.' "'No doubt some officious fool will make haste to give her the information, "'but in the meantime it is better she should know nothing.' Sir Everard ordered his phaeton soon after breakfast next day, and drove alone to Blatchmardon Castle, where he had a mission to fulfil. He had been thinking much of his daughter and his daughter's happiness since they had started on the long homeward journey. It had been his unhappy fate to come between her and the man to whom she had given her fresh young heart, and now he was eager to devise some means by which she might be beguiled into finding new gladness and delight in life. She is so young and childlike, so full of freshness and simplicity. Surely all her capacity for loving cannot be exhausted by this one girlish attachment, he argued with himself. I think I know of someone who could love her as truly as ever Morton Blake loved her, if she would but give him fair play. This idea had been more or less in his mind ever since the cancelment of Dulcie's engagement, and this was his chief purpose in coming back to Fairview. He had seen Lord Beville and Dulcie together, and he had seen enough to convince him that Beville would have gladly taken Morton's place. He had talked to Beville of his daughter's engagement on one occasion, and the young man, naturally frank and outspoken, had made no secret of his warm admiration of Dulcie. Sir Everard had observed him the night they all dined together at Aspinall Towers, and what he had seen then had confirmed him in his idea that Beville was capable of a warm and lasting attachment, light and careless though the young man's nature seemed. And now it was Sir Everard's most ardent desire to see his daughter married, to see her married to a man who would honour and cherish her, but not to Morton Blake, staunch and true though Morton Blake was. "'If Beville could only win her, I should die happy,' he said to himself, having made up his mind that for him death was not far off. "'If I could see her an honoured wife, the mistress of a fine old ancestral home, surrounded by new ties, new friends, new interests, and protected by a devoted and chivalrous husband, I should go my way in peace. But to leave her without a friend in the world, robbed by my act of her chosen lover, depending upon me alone for love and protection?' that is too bitter. It was a bright spring morning, and the hawthorns in Blatchmardon Park were all bursting into leaf, the larches showed green against a background of scotch firs, and the chestnut buds were opening on the sunward side of the trees. Sir Everard looked about him thoughtfully as he drove through the park. He had looked of late upon scenes of striking loveliness, mountain and sea, fertile valley and wide winding river, classic city and time-honoured cathedral, yet this simple English beauty of wood and meadow seemed to him fairer and sweeter than the richer growth of a more luxuriant nature, and touched him nearer than the glory of historic cities. Amid such simple surroundings he had been born and bred, 
and his joys and sorrows were all associated with the little world within a twenty-mile radius of Highclere. At the castle he asked to see Lady Frances Grange. He was told that she was in the garden, and while the white-haired old butler was giving him this information, Miss Moulton came out of the little drawing-room, where she had been filling old Japanese bowls with ferns and daffodils, and was loud in her astonishment at seeing him. "'Sir Everard, this is a surprise. We all thought you were in Algeria. I hope you've benefited by the change. But you're not looking as well as your friends would wish to see you.' Oh, "'We came from Turin very rapidly, and I am a little tired with the journey. Is your pupil to be seen this morning, Miss Moulton? I know I am unconscionably early, but I have come to ask Lady Frances a favour. Oh, I'm sure she'll be pleased to see you. She is roaming about the gardens, I believe, in the wilderness, perhaps. That's her favourite resort on a fine morning. Shall I go with you, or will you try to find her for yourself? Oh, I won't trouble you. I think I shall be able to find her, answered Sir Everard courteously. And when I have told her what I want her to do for me, I will come back and ask your aid in the matter. He went across the broad gravel sweep in front of the castle and away to the wilderness, which skirted one side of the park, screening kitchen gardens and stables from the eye of the stranger. Miss Moulton watched his retreating figure with friendly interest. "'What a fine-looking man he is, and how nobly he carries himself,' she thought. "'If I were a girl, that is just the kind of man I should fall in love with, though he is nearer fifty than forty. But it is a pity he always has that unhappy look, like a man borne down by the weight of secret care. I put it all down to hypochondria. When a man has a handsome income and nothing in the world to trouble him, he takes to reading medical books and imagines himself the victim of some obscure disease. If God doesn't give us real troubles to bear, we tax our poor little minds to invent sham ones." Providence, which had not been lavish in its favours to Sarah Moulton, had given her at least the comfort of adversity's sweet milk, philosophy. She was always ready to philosophise upon any turn of fortune, and her philosophy was happily of the bright and cheerful order, tending to make the best of things, and ready to believe that other people's burdens were quite as big as, and often bigger, than her own. Out of this view of fate came a contentedness and serenity of temper that made stout, homely-visaged Sarah Moulton delightful. The wilderness was a pleasant place on a fine April morning, a land of yellow daffodils and blue periwinkle, overshadowed by larches and scotch firs, with here a chestnut and there a walnut, and anon a cluster of wild cherry-trees or a grand old beech, under which the never-to-be-heard-the-last-of Tityrus might have taken his rest. The ground was green with ivy, moss, and the feathery foliage of the wooden enemy, save where last year's leaves lay in patches of ruddy brown. White anemone cups veined with rose-colour, and bright blue dog-violets were dotted about amidst the greenery. A narrow sandy track, well trodden by Frances Grange and her dogs, meandered through the wilderness, and after following this footpath for some distance, Sir Everard found the young lady sitting on the rugged root of an ancient oak, reading, with a red setter, a liver and white spaniel, and a veteran foxhound, long cast out of the pack, for her companions. She started to her feet at sight of Sir Everard, and blushed rosy red with surprise, 
a glow of colour which gave new beauty to the clear nut-brown skin and new lustre to the dark hazel eyes oh i thought oh, we all thought you were in algiers she exclaimed as they shook hands i left algiers three weeks ago i did not find myself gaining so much health or strength from my exile that it was worth while to keep my daughter any longer separated from all her friends uh, not that she has many friends even at osthorpe poor child we have lived too lonely a life for that i dare say she is very glad to come home answered frances she must have felt the separation from morton was it not a terrible shock to her to find him so ill as yet she knows nothing of his illness indeed uh, no i want to spare her the pain of that knowledge if i can to that end i kept back a letter which dora blake wrote to dulcie while we were at algiers though miss blake no doubt from consideration for my poor girl affected to make light of morton's illness was it not rather cruel of you to keep dulcie in the dark and will it not make the blow harder for her to bear if morton should die asked frances her voice trembled a little as she spoke of this possibility oh i hope not i hope she will be resigned even to that sorrow it could make the calamity no less were her mind to be prepared for it by the slow tortures of anticipation i am going to be quite frank and open with you lady frances for i want to win your friendship if possible your affection for my motherless girl oh i have always been inclined to love her answered frances but i think she has held me a little at a distance or we should have been more intimate than we are perhaps it was poor morton's fault mr blake will have no further influence upon my daughter's life her engagement has been broken at my desire frances paled a little at this shock you cannot mean it she faltered i do mean it the thing has been done some time you will break both their hearts now i can understand the reason of morton's strange illness the doctors have said that mental distress was the cause yet his family could not imagine why he should be unhappy hearts are not so easily broken said sir everard i am sorry to hear of morton's illness but i should put it down to the fatigue and worry of the election rather than to his regret at parting with dulcie she who is all tenderness has borne the separation with resignation possibly were she to hear of his illness and imagine the rupture with her had caused it her peace of mind might be seriously disturbed and this is what i am most anxious to avoid and now lady frances i fling myself upon your generosity i want you to help to heal my dear girl's wounded heart and to guard it from fresh wounds will you come to fairview and be a companion a sister to her till the cloud has passed i will do my utmost to make your visit pleasant to you and if you would like miss moulton to come with you dulcie and i will be delighted to receive her frances looked thoughtful wondering a little at this sudden confidence upon the part of sir everard she had always liked and admired him the grave dignity of his manner that thoughtfulness and reserve which made him so unlike the ordinary country squire had impressed her with an idea of his superiority he was her beau ideal of an intellectual man a thinker and a dreamer 
as contrasted with that common rustic type of which she saw so much the man who gives his mind to agriculture and field sports and spends all his spare capital on steam ploughs and hunters she was deeply flattered by his desire that she should be his daughter's friend oh, you take me by surprise sir everard she faltered i'm inferior to dulcie in almost everything she is so accomplished and well-read and i'm so hopelessly ignorant my delight is in animals and outdoor amusements she loves her books and piano and the seclusion of her own rooms how can i ever be a companion for her the very contrast between you will be good for both if she can interest you in her books and various accomplishments that bright intellect of yours will speedily make up for lost time and it will be highly advantageous for her health and spirits if you can interest her in living creatures and open-air amusements she has lived too much indoors and with the ideas of the dead for her chief companions she has grown like myself too much of a dreamer and a thinker i cannot infuse brightness and gaiety into her life because my own life has long been darkened by the shadow of an unforgettable grief but you can cheer and gladden her you can teach her to look forward and not backward do you really wish me to try asked francis looking at him earnestly with bright candid eyes with all my heart then i will come to fairview at once to-day if you like you cannot come too soon oh always supposing that papa and miss moulton are agreeable will you not bring miss moulton oh i think not she is a dear thing but she had better stay at home and take care of the shake is that his lordship <laughs> yes beville and i generally call him the shake will you come with me and see if we can find him he seldom says no to any wish of mine so it's almost a formula to ask but still i always do ask i like to show my reverence for authority gellert nelly sancho go home this was addressed to the dogs who scampered off through the underwood leaving sir everard and lady frances to follow at their leisure End of chapter 30